situation. He took a pitch in the back. He got beaten for crying out loud. We used heart attack. Lee. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over with the Jeremy's Bob Pro Harbor? The castration of the major league baseball managers, we know it. Ask me about my winner. What's going on, everybody? Another edition of the Passball Show. Somebody told me the other day that I couldn't do a show without talking about baseball. And while it is my passion and what I love and what I enjoy, I have no interest in bringing up the sport right now. I was thinking about the greatest dynasties in the history of professional sports. And I find it fascinating for so many reasons. Because if you think of the four major sports, you could spend some time talking about the Montreal Canadiens and the amount of championships they won. You really talk about the Green Bay Packers when it comes to football, and it brings a different type of debate into the equation. We could dispute, uh, are we only counting the Super Bowl era as if pro football didn't exist before whatever it was, 1966, 1967, that all of a sudden we just forget that anything that was there existed. And, you know, John Pielli, the historian, is not going to go for that, but I was thinking about it for a couple reasons because it just fascinates me how one particular team can dominate for so long. And over time, there's going to be changes within that team. Over time, there's going to be different players in some cases, a lot of cases, most cases, different coaches that end up being part of this particular um you know, the, the, you know, these particular runs. It's not going to be once you get past a decade. You're not talking about the same players. And this what, that's what makes Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots, even though they didn't win at, let's say, the same pace as the Montreal Canadiens of hockey in the 1940s and 50s and the Yankees in the 30s, uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s, or the Green Bay Packers in the 20s and the 30s. But 20 years with the same coach and the same quarterback, there is something that really is fascinating to that. And that's why I look at two distinct franchises and teams in the history of two respective sports. We're talking about basketball and baseball here. And I wonder if we're ever going to see any sort of dominance again when we're talking about how great the Boston Celtics from 1957 to 1976, and the New York Yankees from 1947 to 1964. And you've heard me talk about the Yankees before. It's no secret. I mean, there's no more dominant team in the history of Major League Baseball than the New York Yankees and their 27 World Series championships. But particularly from 1947 to 1964, it's kind of hard to explain how anything like that could happen in professional sports again. The Yankees, of course, won the World Series in 1947. Uh, Joe DiMaggio, there was this young catcher by the name of Yogi Berra who was on the team but wasn't an, an, you know, impactful in the World Series. Bill Dickey had just retired a year before. Bill Dickey was uh, uh, an interim manager when Joe McCarthy stepped away. Bucky Harris got the job 
1947, winning his second World Series championship as a manager and basically cementing himself with a place in the Baseball Hall of Fame. But the Yankees, solid season in 1948, ended up losing out to the Cleveland Indians, who won the World Series that year. And the Yankees made the decision that they were going to move on from Bucky Harris. So they fired Bucky Harris after two really good seasons, one of whom was worthy of a World Series championship, and replaced Bucky Harris with Casey Stengel. And two things are real reasons why the Yankees became what they became. Number one, Stengel kind of using his predecessor and his mentor, John McGraw, and in implementing different platoons and different spots. If he didn't have a star in a particular position, he would play righties against lefty pitching and lefties against righty pitching, stuff in baseball that we think is so common right now. But it wasn't so common in the 1950s. And then you had the clash of two iconic players basically overlapping very briefly but basically taking over a separate dynasty. You had the end of the Joe DiMaggio era leading into the Mickey Mantle era, and it's almost like it, it, w it was selected that Mickey Mantle was going to be Joe DiMaggio's successor as the dominant star player of the New York Yankees. And obviously Yogi Berra, for everything that he meant to that team, really being the glue, I mean, it's hard to win anything and the Yankees probably don't win all those World Series championships, 10 of them, without Yogi Berra. But just the, the fact that there's two basically generations that overlap, you know, 1951 was Mickey Mantle's first season and it was Joe DiMaggio's last season, right in the middle of the Yankees winning five straight World Series championships. And Mickey Mantle comes up in 51, 51, 52, 53, first three seasons in the big leagues are all World Series championships for him. DiMaggio... Ends up leaving 49, 50, 51. And then, of course, one in 47 as well. One 36 and 39 and 1941 and 43. You know, for those keeping score at home. But I think for those reasons, you're never going to see a baseball team dominate that much. And you've heard me talk before about um, collective bargaining, free agency, all things that have changed in baseball over the last 40 plus years. And reasons like that, you can't hold a team together. You know, it's likely that the next Mickey Mantle may not spend his entire career with one team. And a Yogi Berra and all the different players, whether it's a Whitey Ford or um, guys that were just in the right place at the right time, like a, a Billy Martin and a Bobby Richardson and a Phil Rizzuto. So I look at the Yankees and, you know, through the time of 1947 to 1964, that's 18 years the Yankees won 10 World Series championships. That meant that they finished number one in the American League 10 years to have a chance to win a World Series. But not only that, they actually won the American League 15 times in 18 years. And to finish one out of eight, 15 out of 18 years, it's pretty freaking impressive. And then finishing one out of 16 but you count the National League, 10 of those 18 years. Like I said, it's something you're not going to see in baseball ever again. But uh, what really challenges that is if you wanted to talk about the Boston Celtics and their history, particularly from the years of 1957 to 1976. And the reason I bring up that decade, it's a roundabout 20-year number, but 
the fact that there's something in the middle there that I don't think is ever going to be replicated. Now, obviously, we're talking about professional sports. You could bring up UCLA, college basketball, if you want. You want to bring that as part of the discussion. I have no issue with that. We could discuss it, bring it up, and you know, do whatever you want with it. Listen, college sports, they're, while, while they're fascinating, it's still not the pros. And that's why I don't think it's part of this discussion. But I think of the beginning of the NBA, when really the first dominant team was none other than the Minneapolis Lakers under head coach John Kundala. The first star player, the first all-time great player in George Mikan was part of that team. And the Minneapolis Lakers won five of the first eight NBA championships, including you know six, seven, and eight in 52, 53, and 54. Now, after the Syracuse Nationals won their first championship, the Philadelphia Warriors won their second championship. And obviously, we know them today as the Golden State Warriors and the six-time NBA champions they are. The Boston Celtics in 1957 won their first NBA championship, beating the St. Louis Hawks in seven games. Now, the Hawks returned the favor in 1958, beating them in six games. And then starting in 1959 to 1966, the Celtics won the NBA championship every season. So that's eight straight NBA championships that the Boston Celtics won, which, by the way, five of whom were at the hands of the previous dynasty in the Minneapolis Lakers. Now, some of the players and personnel had changed a little bit, and by then, John Cundalo was no longer the coach. Fred Schaus was there for a couple years, four years, actually, 62, 63, 65, 66. The Celtics won every time, and the script was kind of flipped. It wasn't about the Lakers anymore, who, by the way, after the Celtics beat them the fifth time in a row for the NBA championship, the Lakers were 5-5 five and five in NBA finals. And the Celtics had won their eighth in a row and were now 9-1 in an identical 10 NBA championship appearances. Now, listen, that's what happens when you win eight in a row. But if you're talking about the nostalgia of it... Um, you know, it'd be nice to just kind of live in that era for a second and talk about basically one team passing the torch to the other. And I'm not talking about the Lakers to the Celtics. I'm talking about the Yankees from 47 to 64, kind of passing it off to the Boston Celtics, who really ruled the world of sports from 57 to 76. And by the way, what happened after 1976? The Yankees won the World Series again in 77 and 78. So you really had a stretch from 1947 to 1978, which was well over 40 years, 42 years to be exact, where really two teams ruled professional sports. Now, two teams in rival markets where the fans of one would not be fans of the other. In fact, there is the extremely, extremely rare Celtic Yankee fan that exists out there. Obviously, Boston, you know, you think of the Red Sox and the Yankees and their rivalry and, you know, to a lesser extent, the rivalry that exists between the Celtics and the Knicks. And obviously, it would make sense why New York fans would stay with the Celtics and, I'm sorry, with the Knicks and the Yankees and the Boston fans would root for the Red Sox and the Celtics. But, you know, you're really looking at almost over an over 40-year stretch in sports history where two teams ruled 
the world of sports. Forget about just a sport. You know, be be something to say, hey, two teams were the greatest teams of this generation and they're in one sport. I'm talking about the four major sports. And it, it would be very hard. And you could talk about individual teams, individual teams that had little runs within this time frame, teams that were good, teams that you could say, hey, you know what, they were pretty dominant, but certainly couldn't polish the shoes of the Boston Celtics and the New York Yankees. And my question that I want to throw out there is which one do you believe was a little more dominant? Now, I would make a Twitter poll, except I gave up Twitter for Lent. And I'm not going to access the app up until um, Easter Sunday, probably the day after, just to be safe. But I'm really curious to the pulse of the general public. Now, listen, I think there's a lot of modern-day sports fans that don't care too much about the, the 50s to the 70s Celtics. Uh, you know, if you're a basketball fan, you root for whatever team it is. And even if you root for the Celtics, yes, you um, retain some history. You inherited some history. You know, the 13-1 and record in the first 14 NBA Finals that the Celtics were in, which all happened over the course of a 20-year stretch, it's pretty friggin' amazing. And you can talk about the most recent NBA championship that the Boston Celtics had. What year was that? It was 2000, we're talking about eight? Or, yeah, 2008, when the Celtics beat the Los Angeles Lakers. And you could talk about how great the stretch was before that. Or... Let's say you're a Larry Bird fan, Kevin McHale, you know, uh, Dennis Johnson, Danny Ainge, you know, and the uh, 1980s teams with Casey Jones. But um, prior to that, Bill Fitch, you know, Bill Fitch, similar to Bucky Harris, carved himself a spot into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. And obviously, um, Bucky Harris getting into the Baseball Hall of Fame basically because of one season. And Bill Fitch leading the Celtics in 1981 to the World Series, to the NBA championship over the Houston Rockets got him into the Hall of Fame. And Casey Jones, obviously a Hall of Famer himself, won two championships there. But the Celtics, uh, after the 1986 season, were 16-2 and in NBA Finals. Lost the next year to the Lakers. And, of course, the Lakers won a couple more. And, you know, when it's all said and done, there's no team that has played in more NBA Finals than the Los Angeles Lakers. But the Lakers have lost their share, including eight in a row. And, you know, you look at their different teams. But, you know, focusing on this run, and obviously this run that the Celtics had, 13 championships in 20 years. And the reason I bring it up and say it's different than Bill Russell and his 11 out of 13 championships, which you hear discussed a little more often. And, you know, I understand it because, I mean, that kind of makes it all about one player. And Bill Russell, the all-time great that he is, and you can't name or you shouldn't be able to name a top five when it comes to NBA basketball players and not have Bill Russell in that discussion. But I'm backing off from Russell a little bit. And I, yes, I was a little critical and I'll admit to it, when the NBA put him in its Basketball Hall of Fame as a coach in addition to as a player. Now, the reason that I've kind of grown okay with it, not that I'm one that could ever change that or impact that or have any say, is the the NBA allows that to be a possibility, to go into its Basketball Hall of Fame twice. Lenny Wilkins did it. So there was a precedent set to where somebody had already been put into the Hall of Fame as both a player and a coach. 
So Bill Russell, yeah, he won a couple championships as a coach. I don't think he necessarily dominated. I mean, he set the 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 Seattle team up for success after they won. They went to the NBA Finals the year after he left. Won the championship the year after that. And I thought he was a good coach, but I don't look at Bill Russell and say he's an all-time great coach. When I think of Bill Russell, I think of the all-time great player that he was. And obviously the consummate winner being part of 11 out of 13 NBA championships for the Boston Celtics. So, you know, but I expand this because the Celtics, after this 11 out of 13, which started in the year of 1957, ran all the way through uh, 1968-1969, the Knicks won in 1970, of course. The Milwaukee Bucks won in 71. And, of course, that's brought up again because 50 years later in 2021, the Milwaukee Bucks are the NBA champions again. Only the second time they've ever won. The Lakers won. After that, the Knicks won again in 73. And then, after a four-year hiatus from being in the NBA Finals, the Boston Celtics under Tom Heinsohn are back there again in 1974, win the championship again in 76. So this may not have necessarily been considered part of the same dynasty. Bill Russell, by this point, is long gone. Obviously, there's a new group of star players, pretty similar to what we talk about with the Yankees from 47 to 64. You know, Joe DiMaggio was a, still kind of in the back prime of his career in 1947. Plays all the way to 51, but by 64, you're actually talking about the beginning of the end of Mickey Mantle's career. Yogi Berra, by that point, is coaching and then playing for the New York Mets in 64. He manages the Yankees in 63. When the Yankees lose to the Los Angeles Dodgers, you know, Yogi is unceremoniously fired after just one season and replaced by Johnny Keene. And you look really, and I'm sorry, I got that a little confused. 64 was when Yogi Berra led the Yankees to the World Series against the Cardinals. And the Yankees made the controversial decision to fire Yogi Berra, replace him with Johnny Keene, who was the manager of the Cardinals. And there's a little bit of a backstory involved with that. Keene was set to be fired by the Cardinals and their ownership after it looked like they were having an underachieving season. The Philadelphia Phillies of 1964 had a great collapse in September, and the Cardinals end up winning the pennant. And they rode that momentum into the World Series, beating the Yankees, and kind of putting a little bit of egg on the hands of the St. Louis Cardinals and their organization. Kind of committing to move on from Johnny Keene. Well, now Johnny Keene's in a spot where he is a World Series championship manager, and it was tough for the Cardinals to say, all right, well, we're going to fire you. There was a mutual agreement of parting of ways. Red Shandies was named the manager for the 1965 season. But for the Yankees, 65 became the beginning of the end. And it's not all on Johnny Keene. The 65 Yankees were terrible early in 66. Keene was let go. And sadly, he would end up passing away not, not too long after that. But that was basically the end. And that signified the end of that Yankee dynasty, which... Almost made it through 20 years. And that's why, if you're going to ask me what generation the Yankees from 47 to 64 or the Celtics from 57 to 76 was more dominant, is because the Celtics continued to show signs of a pulse. The Yankees in 65 really going all the way until 
probably about 72, 73, were one of the worst teams in baseball. Now, if you're the Celtics, hey, you had a bad season here, a bad season there, a disappointing season. But how many times did that team reboot itself to win two more championships in 74 and 76? So if you're asking me, I believe the Celtics of 57 to 76 were more dominant than the Yankees of 47 to 64. What say you? So the other thing that I wanted to talk about, and I know I'm not going to spend too much time talking about this, but you got you know, the NFL obviously grabbing center stage as much as they can. Now, if you're a diehard football fan and that's all you root for, you, know, you should be happy with the uh, emergence of the USFL, which you're going to see games within the next, what, month or so. Obviously, the NFL draft, but right now you have something that has been popularized Maybe to a point where it's a little bit too much. And that's the NFL college scouting combines. And listen, I have intrigue when it comes to the next generation of football players. I, you know, I'd like to see it happen in more sports. Maybe uh, you know, prior to the NBA draft, have some of the players go out there and train. And maybe as the basketball fan can, can kind of analyze what, what he thinks as some things he sees, he or she sees or doesn't see. Baseball will be cool prior to the, the draft, but you know their draft is is you know a lot of high school players as much as college uh, college baseball players. So you have all different types of people from different areas. Uh, to have a major league baseball combine would be a little bit hard to do for the draft. But you know while you got you got two sides that could give a shit about the very sport that they support. Hey, maybe that's something they could throw on and talk about while they're. Wasting time over the next uh, you know month or couple months while we don't have baseball. I digress because I'm not going to get pissed off here. I'm in too good of a mood. I, I really don't feel like getting into something that all it's going to do is just piss me off. So, you know, thinking about that, the NFL Combine, I think it's something that is a little bit overrated. I believe that it is a little bit too much. And I think ESPN... Now, in addition to the NFL Network, I think they're giving you a little bit too much overkill. Um, listen, in a time where there is no baseball, I may be a little more intrigued or that two-sport fan, that football, baseball fan, may be a little more interested in some of the stuff of how fast a football player can run a 40, uh, some of the other skills competitions, how much they can deadlift. Uh, and... You know, more importantly, I think it's what do the analysts think? What do the experts think? You know, the Mel Kuypers of the world as they're putting together their projected NFL draft. Because the average football fan's thinking about their own favorite team. And they watch certain players run and say, hey, maybe that player, you know, let me go check their stats in college if I didn't know very much about him. Or, you know, Kenneth Murray, uh, yeah, I've heard of him. Uh, or, you know, you think about, you know, Matt Coral. All right, I watched him play in a game this year. And they think about the own interest or the best interest of their own favorite team, that they, the very team that they support. And that's kind of cool, but how, mu how much of it are you going to absorb, um, divulge into, and make part of your life? I mean, are you going to do your own mock draft? You know, your first 50, 60 picks? Or seven rounds of the NFL draft? Are you going to pick... Um, you know, that many players, you know, the whatever, 200 whatever players, 300 players that are selected and which teams they're going to go to. 
I mean, I guess if you have that much time on your hands, go for it. But outside of that, you know, I mean, there's only so much I can watch. You know, listen, I'm intrigued by the, you know, the front seven of the Georgia Bulldogs. And I know there's there's going to be a lot of those players that are going to be, you know, drafted uh, very high. They're all going to go in a draft likely. And, you know, to follow a little more college basketball, uh, football, like, like a lot of people I think are doing nowadays, because there is a little bit more of a tie-in between college and pro football and College football, we know, went back way before the days of the National Football League or any semblance of professional football. But, you know, there's college football fans, and then there's the casuals, those that follow college football to get to the NFL. And I don't, I, I think some of them are more intrigued than they were before. And I think you gain a little bit more out of the love of college football and these players. And you know, you know what's on the line. You know that they're thinking about going from being college students at major programs. And yes, the majority of them were on, are on scholarships and had to dream of playing professional football. Some of them, you know, expected to be in this situation. You know, you got the guy, you know, the offensive lineman that uh, is expected to go number one overall. You know, there's that dream. And I think there's a humility to it watching the NFL draft. and But I, I put a separation between the draft and the scouting combine because how many hundreds of players are working out here, some of them feeling the need to work out just to hope, with the hope of gaining a little bit of attention and momentum into the given draft. I, I, I just don't love it. Listen, I respect it. I, I'm glad it's out there. I'm glad as I'm flipping through the channels, it gives me something to watch. But I think it's overrated. So as we're following the, the last string of NBA games as we get set to the, for the playoffs, um, the NBA really has taken center stage. And if you've really followed over the last couple weekends, there's been some exciting games to watch. LeBron James dropping 56 against the Golden State Warriors, basically willing himself to a victory over a very good team in Golden State, a team that sits at number three in the Western Conference. Memphis is number two, followed by, of course, Phoenix. Phoenix dropped a game to the defending champion Milwaukee Bucks in a rematch of the NBA Finals of last year, where Milwaukee beat Phoenix. Now, Phoenix was uh, you know, without some stars. No Devin Booker, no Chris Paul, no Cam Johnson. But, you know, they... They played Milwaukee right down to the end. It was a solid game. So, you know, my question is, what type of momentum do you feel is being built for the playoffs this year? One thing that I've learned is the Eastern Conference, I think, is a lot stronger than the Western Conference for the first time in a very long time. And I know here on the Past Ball Show, I've spent a lot of time talking about um, some teams that may not be making a lot of noise in the postseason this year. I've spoken a lot about the Lakers. I admit that I was wrong about the Russ Westbrook trade. I thought Russell Westbrook could be that tertiary star to kind of do things on his own and basically help LeBron and AD in Los Angeles. Now, I talk about that now. You know, I spoke about that months ago. And I'm going to be met with a lot of criticism. And I have been. And I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm not pissed about it. I get it. It hasn't worked out. You know, Frank Vogel, the coach there, is pretty much between a rock and a hard place. He's being told by his superiors to 
you know, have Russell Westbrook come off the bench. He feels a little bit of a loyalty to the player, so he's basically putting his own job in jeopardy. I think he pretty much knows he's going to be the scapegoat. Vogel is going to be the scapegoat if the team doesn't make any noise in the postseason. And I think a lot of time from a national perspective has been wasted talking about the Lakers and what they haven't done this year. Yes, from a star perspective, there could be upwards to five Hall of Famers on that team right now. Obviously, LeBron, obviously Westbrook. Um, I think Carmel Anthony's a Hall of Famer. I think Dwight Howard's a Hall of Famer. You know, even though neither are anywhere near what they were in their prime, but you know, the NBA and their watered down Hall of Fame, I don't see why you would leave Anthony and Howard out. And then the other one, the most questionable one, is probably Anthony Davis, who has had some dominant seasons, but is being known as a player that can't stay on the court. And Anthony Davis not being on the court and being injured and being ineffective when he is on the court, I think has been a bigger um, holdup of the Lakers and their success this year. And really what you saw on Saturday is the one chance shot opportunity that the Lakers have is if LeBron James basically puts the team on his back and wills them to a championship by doing things like scoring 50-plus every game. And we know that's not possible. You know that's why they traded for AD. You know that's why they traded for Russell Westbrook, even though it was the wrong decision. Maybe they should have dealt for Buddy Heald. Maybe they should have swapped Westbrook for John Wall at the trading deadline. Uh, All things that I think are interesting, but the bottom line is they are where they are. So there's been a lot of talk about the Knicks. The Knicks in their very good season they had last year when it seems like they were developing a good core with Julius Randle and R.J. Barrett. Barrett's kind of gotten better. Randle has kind of digressed a little bit. There's been a little less of a supporting cast. Evan Fournier and, of course, the now-departed Kemba Walker. And I could get in a, go on a rant about how basketball players can decide with teams that they're not going to play anymore when they're healthy, but... Once again, topic for another day or a day in the past because you know I've bitched and complained about this an awful lot. You know, There's been a lot of talk about the Knicks. The Knicks kind of on the outside looking in. They might not make the 10-team, uh, you know, the four-team play-in with 10 postseason teams in East Conference now. The Lakers are kind of in the same spot. You got the Brooklyn Nets, who I was stupid enough to pick a, a Nets-Lakers finals. <laughs> Listen, it's going to be a friggin' miracle if that happens. There's a better chance that both of those teams miss the playoffs altogether. And that's play-in games added. They'll finish 11th or worst. Then get to the NBA Finals. So what does that leave us? That leaves uh, two teams that were in the Finals last year that probably aren't getting anywhere near as enough credit as they deserve. Chris Middleton is a dominant scorer for the Bucks. You watch Drew Holiday kind of be that tertiary player. Giannis, who was in foul trouble, not a impact impactful in the second half for the exception of his block late. And then he got Phoenix, who is a good team. They got the best record in the NBA, and they're without probably their top three scores. Now, DeAndre Ayton, you could probably say he's in there as the second or third leading scorer. You know, Paul is more of a facilitator, Chris Paul. Obviously, Devin Booker is their their top player. They can't win an NBA championship without Devin Booker. But, you know, this is a team that I think is going to get a little bit better. So what do you think? 
when it comes to the NBA picture. Because I think we may have a, a different type of NBA finals like we had last year. And I thought I thought it was good for the sport to have two teams that we haven't seen match up too, you know, too often. Um, now, I think there is a little bit of a, a obsession up there as you're watching my Facebook camera probably take a dump. And you don't need to see my face anyway, so who, who cares? Just, just take a good look at that baseball covering there with the logo of the past ball show there. Yeah, you know, leave it, leave it up to you. What do you, what do you expect to see in the NBA Finals this year? I'd be, I'd be in favor of seeing the the 76ers. You know, the Miami Heat. You heard a lot about getting there, getting, you know, getting, uh, winning championships here and there. But also, you know, there's there's that repetitive nature of seeing the same team too often, and. We're pretty much gonna shut this down over here. Yeah. But as we're as we're finishing up here, you know, I'd be more in favor of seeing a team get to the finals that we haven't seen. How about a 76ers Memphis Grizzlies final? I mean, that would be intriguing. Joel Embiid, Ja Morant. I mean, forget about the teams that we've talked about in a, in a show that has spent a lot of time talking about dominance, the Celtics and the Yankees and what they did in uh, basically for about 42 years straight. You know, how about a couple newcomers? You know, the 76ers, yes, they've won three championships in the NBA. You know, the Memphis Grizzlies haven't gotten very far. And they've been spoken about as that team right on the outside getting ready to uh, make their run. Maybe this is a year for them. So in a year where I was thinking more Nets-Lakers, I'm kind of leaning now towards 76ers-Grizzlies. This is the Past Ball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey. And Pat jumps on. He says, uh, I'll, I'll see it soon enough. <laughs> yeah, funny stuff, man. So we will be back with you. Uh, probably Wednesday this week. Maybe we'll do a show on Saturday. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side. On the Chicago Cubs roster opening day. I have many leather-bound books. My apartment smells of rich mahogany. Why don't you give it all or a majority of it to the team that wins the freaking World Series? I was going to listen to that, but then I just carried on it in my life. Now they come out as the biggest... Major League Baseball manager apologist. That'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I could drive out of the park. I was supposed to be here today. Especially prospect whores and hoarders are going to be a little pissed off at me when I say this. I'm a dude playing a dude disguises another dude. There are only two managers in baseball's Hall of Fame who have losing records. One of them is the iconic Connie Mack, who you could say, in spite of winning five World Series championships as a manager, could be in as much as a pioneer. And what side of the spectrum they're on? Were they pitching? Were they batting? If your favorite team was pitching and a ball got inside to hit a batter, there's no way it could have been on purpose. But if you were a fan of the team that was batting and a ball got inside and hit somebody or went behind somebody's head, absolutely 100%, unequivocally, that pitcher was throwing at them. They put their tail.
tail between their legs, decided they're going to do exactly what they're told. You damn well right. Better give him a contract extension. You damn well right. Better make him the manager over the next series of years. 35 years ago, I could have loaned your parents the money for an abortion.